Brethren, and if a man be overtaken in any fault, you who are spiritual, instruct such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. These are the words coming from today's holy epistle. We note that in the gospel and in the epistle, put before our mind's eyes are the works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy, praying for the dead, we see praying for the, or uh, consoling the sorrowful, we see in the gospel. We also see instructing the ignorant, bearing wrongs patiently. And uh, we see all these, the, uh, the, all seven of the, uh, the, the works of mercy, also included in the, the epistle and the gospel. Well, we're going to look at one of them. But before we do, let us recall to our mind the three parts of a moral act. For there are three parts of the moral act. And as one theologian once spoke of, they're kind of like three mountains. And from these three mountains come these rivers. And these rivers come and they feed into a lake. And that lake is the action itself, the moral action. And it's from these three rivers that we determine whether that action is a good action or a bad action. And according to the amount of pollution, it, uh, it will determine whether it is a uh, greater or lesser act, morally speaking. So first of all, let's look at the three fonts. The three fonts are these, the object, the intention, and the circumstances. The object is what, the, what is going on what we are doing. The intention is why you're doing it. And the third one, the circumstances, are other conditions that might affect the act. The object is what was called the finis operato in Latin. The finis operato, which is the end of the act. Of the act. Finis operato, the end of the act. The f- intention is why you're doing it. The finis operantis, the end of of the one who's acting. So the thing that the person envisions when he is performing this action is his intention. And then circumstance comes from two Latin words, circum, which is a preposition, meaning around, and stans, from stand, or to remain. So we have basically standing around. Those things which stand around the action, in some way color it. And those include things like who, Who is doing the action and to whom is the action being done? Or what? Other things that are going on in that very same act. Where? Where it's being done or when it's being done are all part of circumstances. Or how it's being done, the manner in which it's done. So let's look at the first two. Sometimes we mistake the two because the object and the intention, many times we we confuse as one and the same. But that's not always the case. First of all, what you're doing may differ for why you're doing it. For example, somebody might be telling the fault of another. That's the object itself, revealing the faults of another. So the intention. The intention might actually be a good intention. Maybe you're warning somebody about somebody who is going to do great harm to the other person. So revealing the faults of another in that case would be virtuous. But if the intention 
was a bad intention. For example, to break up the friendship between two people, then it's not a good intention. After all, telling the faults of another in that case would be a serious sin. And so we have to look also at the intention and not simply at the object which is going on. But we should note that if the object is intrinsically evil, if the, the, that thing that we are doing, no intention or no circumstance could ever change the object and make it a good object. Oh, I had a good reason for doing that. If the object is evil, then the whole moral act is evil in itself. If the object is intrinsically evil... One, for example, we can think of unnatural actions and unions established to foster these kinds of sins. There can be no circumstance or intention that can ever make intrinsically evil actions good. Remember the words from last week, last, last week's epistle, of which I foretold you as I have foretold you that they who do such things shall not obtain the kingdom of God. Or the book of Romans, who having known the justice of God, did not understand that they who do such things are worthy of death, and not only they that do them, but they also who consent to them that do them. So we see that the intention is important. And then finally, the circumstance, those things which stand about. So understanding that, understanding these three fonts of the moral act, let us approach what the epistle is speaking about today, fraternal Correction, fraternal correction. St. Anthony Marie Claret. We quoted him before. He's a great devotee of St. Alphonsus Liguori. He says and defines fraternal correction as an admonition of a neighbor which strives to call him back from his sin. So it's an admonition of a neighbor which strives to call him back from sin. It is rooted in charity. Remember, fraternal correction is an act of charity. It's not an act of fortitude where somebody wishes to show how strong they are in the spiritual life and by doing so they're going to correct somebody. It's not an act of fortitude. The intention is the good of the other, the desiring of the salvation of the other person's soul. It's an act of charity. We have to remember that when we are approaching fraternal correction. St. Anthony Marie Claret points out there are six things that we have to consider. First of all, that the neighbor has externally and sensibly committed a mortal sin. The person actually has to have committed a mortal sin for us to prompt us to go and correct them. And he points out that we have to be moral, have moral certitude that the person has committed the sin. We can't just have suspicion we have to, in order for us to execute fraternal correction. The third thing is that the neighbor has not yet amended his ways. Now, we don't beat up on somebody who has changed his ways. If the person has amended, there's no need for the fraternal correction. They've changed. And so the, 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 the correction is not necessary. It's been fixed. And then, then we have to see that there is hope that the correction will take. We have to have a reasonable hope that that person will amend their life or before we approach them to correct them. And then there is, we have to realize that there is no other person there present who can make a fitting correction. And that would prompt us, that would oblige us 
to correct. And then the sixth thing is when one has to observe that the occasion is proper, the time, the place, all those things for the proper correction. So the matter of a fraternal correction are mortal sins which a neighbor will fall into or has fallen into without amending him. That's the matter of correction. St. Anthony Marie Claret says that there is no obligation to correct a venial sins because there would, that would be a too heavy a load. Thus is the opinion of many authors that there is no such obligation for venial sins. But he makes an exception. Save for superiors, he says. Save for superiors. And he gives an example. Bishops. Bishops have an obligation to correct heresy in their diocese. They have an obligation to correct people who err in their diocese. Priests have the same obligation. They have an obligation not only for the venial sins, but also, also not only mortal sins, but also for venial sins as well. Parents have an obligation to correct the faults, even the venial faults of their children because they don't want those wicked weeds which start off so small to grow up and to be giant weeds that choke out all the virtues. And so in justice, we have an obligation, not simply out of charity. This falls under justice. But the matter in fraternal correction is mortal sin, strictly speaking. Then, we look at the intention. The intention must be the correction of the person's soul. Remember, it's an act of charity, desiring the good of the other, the salvation of the other person's soul. So we hear the words of today's epistle. Let us not be made desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another, desirous of vainglory, desiring to look good, Above other people. That's not the end. That's not, that should not be the intention. The intention should be the salvation of the other person's soul. St. Augustine says these words. He says, quote, The task of rebuking others, other sins, is never to be undertaken except when after self-examination our conscience assures us in the presence of God that we do so, do it simply out of love for the offender. Love then do what you will. In that way, and then say what you will, excuse me. In no way will that which sounds like a curse be a curse indeed. If you re- recollect and feel throughout that your only wish is of using the sword of the word of the Lord is to deliver your brother from the snares of sin. End quote, St. Augustine. So we see it has to be out of love. That should be our intention. So nowadays when we see so many things going by in emails and blogs, people not directly uh, speaking to the person, and that's something that is so important when we get to the, the circumstance of how it's done. This We see that this may not be the intention of those who do such things. So let's go to the circumstances. Who? Who is, who is being corrected? Cornelius Lapide, commenting on the passage, if a man be overtaken in any fault, says these words. St. Paul is not speaking here of those who are obstinate in their evil doing. 
These, as St. Gregory insists, because they sin deliberately are to be rebuked sternly. Their hard hearts, as Tertullian says, must be broken and not soothed. St. Paul is referring to those who, being weak in the faith, have been seduced and have been overtaken before they could resist. The Greek word rendered fault denotes an accidental fall, as when one, through inadvertence, stumbles over a stone or falls into a ditch. Cornelius Lapidae. So we see in many in the church, because of lack of education these past 40 years, stumble into faults. And so we have an obligation many times to correct them, but we do it with the purpose in mind of changing them, those hearts and minds. Then we should consider who is doing the correction and to whom it's being done. Here we hear again the words of Holy Scripture, the superiors. You who are spiritual, instruct such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. These are to superiors. Superiors are to correct those within mind towards meekness, seeking their correction, instructing with the spirit of meekness, considering oneself lest they also be tempted. Cassian, who was a monk, who came to southern Gaul and brought with him the eastern monasticism to the west around the year 360, wrote a great work on that the lives of the monks. And here he speaks about a young monk who is tempted by impure thoughts, desires, and he spoke these words, he mentioned this to an older monk, one that had been there many years. And the older monk rebuked him and rebuked him so hard that the young monk began thinking, maybe this is not my vocation. And he began to seriously wonder about his vocation and, be, and was at the point of leaving the monastery. To which the abbot approached the young monk and encouraged him. Then he asked God to also enlighten the mind of this old, older monk. And in doing so, the older monk received the very same, same, same temptations that the younger monk was exposed to. Realizing this, the abbot approached him and he said to him, learn to feel compassion for the he who is younger. And so in this case, he learned from this example. So we should consider also those underneath us. But also equals. Bear ye one another's burdens. So we should also consider correcting our, our peers. This is something that we should consider also when we're considering correcting those who are above us. Too often times, we see nowadays that people thrust themselves, the act of pride, in correcting those who are above us. It's not uncommon to see children in restaurants, in the stores, trying to correct parents as if they were their equals. You shouldn't do that. Well, you are not my equal, are you? 
No, they, they should not. And also in things that they have no place. Remember, fraternal correction is about serious sins. So what does somebody, like a little child, trying to correct their parents about faults, have to do with anything? Why are they doing this? They should consider exactly what is going on. And we should also consider the same when it comes to the priesthood, when it comes also to the bishopric. How are we approaching? And how are we doing it to each other, to our peers? Remember, there's a certain rule that we follow. We first approach the person. We talk to them. And then, if they won't hear us, we bring somebody else to also strengthen that argument. And if not, we take it to the church. That's how Holy Scripture says. But so often we see that that's not the case. Many people find out about the correction from some other source when everybody has been gossiping about them for, for months. That's not spiritual correction. That's not fraternal correction. That's not charity at all. That's tailbearing. That's calumny. That's detraction. It's not charity. So we approach the person and we, we correct them. Then it matters in the manner in which we do it as well. St. Augustine has three excellent rules when approaching somebody and how we do it. He says, Great care must be taken that when duty compels us to correct anyone, we think, one, whether the fault is such as we have never committed in the past or are subject to at that moment. Are we guilty of the same thing? Bishop Sheen used to always say that whenever we have one finger pointing out, we have three pointing back at us. We should consider the thing that I'm correcting or noticing in another, am I guilty in some way of the same thing? The second thing he says is, quote, if we have been addicted to it and are now not, let some thought of human weakness touch the mind so that our reproaches may spring not from hatred but from pity. And whether our efforts succeed in reforming the offender or only avail to confirm him in evil, for the issue is uncertain. In either case, we may be certain that our eye is single. So we consider our own weakness when we approach the other person. How many people who have fallen away from the Catholic faith and returned uh, have to correct somebody else and they forget that they themselves have fallen away? Or that we have fallen, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. So that we also correct with that in mind, with pity in our soul. And then finally, three, if, however, you find in reflection that we ourselves are guilty of the same fault as he whom we undertake to correct, let us not rebuke him or scold him, but only mourn together and invite him not to obey us, but to unite with us in guarding against this common enemy. When we say that we are also struggling with this, but we should overcome this, it's a good thing. So we consider the manner in which we do it as well. Helping another person, bearing another, our neighbor's burdens, as the Holy Scripture says. We do this by not just correcting them, but also by praying for them. Praying that they may change. And then the third thing, even by offering up sacrifices. Our Lord commanded us to do so many things. He laid out those things necessary for our salvation and reproved sin 
quite often. But He did not leave us alone in that. He said about the scribes and Pharisees, they blind they they bind heavy and unsupportable burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders but with a finger of their own they do not move them this is not the case with our lord we see him on the cross we see how he took the burden upon himself and he offered up that sacrifice for our sins and so we who are christians members of that mystical body can also help bear our neighbor's burdens by little sacrifices after we, are, we correct in order to correct. So we see that there are three things, the object, the intention, and the circumstances, which are the fonts. We notice that the object is the desiring that the, of the amendment of the other person's soul and speaking those words for that end. We see that the intention has to be pure, the intention being the amendment of life the desiring by charity of the conversion of the soul and not for any other intention. And we see that the circumstances, who is doing the correction, to whom we are giving the correction, has to be done properly. How it's done. It should be important of when it's done or where it's done. Finding the right time and place. All those things, the intention, the object, the circumstances, must be considered if we ourselves are to imitate what our Lord himself, the Holy Scripture, calls us today, brethren, if any man be overtaken in fault, you who are spiritual, instruct such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest also thou be tempted. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us.